0: there was an anvil resting on his chest or at least that's what it felt like it was not an object but rather a force that plastered the young pilot to the inside edge of the training pod his blood felt heavy and sluggish in his veins he pulled what little air he could through clenched teeth tried to blink but the muscles in his eyelids were insufficient to overcome the force that crushed him into the wall. Constellations of lights carouseled past outside in a steadily repeating pattern, though his eyes could not focus on them. Just a little longer. Finally, the centrifuge began to slow, and the centrifugal force that had mashed the pilot in the pod gradually abated. Breathless, he stumbled from the pod and left the infernal machine behind. It was just one more in a long line of torments he and his fellow trainees had been subjected to over the past few weeks. Physical tests, psychological tests, stress tests. But if this was what was required to be selected for one of the Soviet military's mysterious special flights, then he would endure. When he checked the roster for those pilots selected for the special flight shortlist, he was elated when he spied his name on the page. Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. Welcome to Episode 7 of Frontier of Infinity starmen when we last left off nasa had produced its first batch of astronauts chosen from among america's test pilots and subjected to a long and rigorous selection process they made their debut at the dolly madison house in washington dc to much public fanfare branding them as heroes right off the bat much to the surprise of the men Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, Sergei Kurlyev was having trouble winning support for his own manned space program among the Soviet leadership. He also launched another lunar probe, which missed the moon, but did discover that it lacks a magnetic field. In this episode, we're going to cover what happened next for the Mercury 7, while Kurlyev keeps up his appeals in the USSR and manages to score another victory for the Soviet Union in the ongoing space race. From a nation of 175 million, they stepped forward last week. Seven men cut of the same stone as Columbus, Magellan, Daniel Boone, Orville and Wilbur Wright Rarely were history's explorers and discoverers so clearly marked out in advance as men of destiny. So declared Time Magazine on April 20th, 1959, referring to the so-called Mercury 7, NASA's first class of astronauts. Overnight, these men had become superstars in the U.S. and around the world, They were symbols of American achievement, and without having even flown into space yet. The mere promise that they would was enough to rile a mighty response among their countrymen. Deke Slayton, one of the Mercury Seven, said of his sudden celebrity, It happened without us doing a damn thing. We seven show up for a news conference and now we're the bravest men in the country. Talk about crazy. End quote. Naturally, every publication, radio station, or television channel wanted time with the newly minted astronauts. But that attention was not limited solely to the men themselves. Their families were also forced to endure a deluge of media attention, from cameramen snapping photos to interviewers clamoring for just a few words on how they felt about what their husbands and fathers were doing or for details about their lives at home. The wives of the astronauts were featured on the cover of Life magazine, while newspapers ran articles and photos of their own. Alan Shepard's wife Louise tried her best to dodge the press with her and Alan's two children, taking them out of the house and to a nearby beach. This worked for a little while, but a pair of Life magazine photographers caught up with them anyway. When she returned home later, she found her house utterly besieged by vultures with clipboards and microphones. There was no escape from the press, only momentary reprieve. In May, across the world in Russia, the news of the new American astronauts was likewise being received, though with an entirely different tone. The Americans were working on a manned space program. There could be no doubt. They had already selected the men who would fly and were now working on the rocket and capsule that would take them into space. That must have chilled at least a few members of the Soviet leadership, as Kurliev quickly received the authorization he had been so eager for. He was permitted to begin work on his Soviet manned space program. That same month, the Mercury 7 and their families were adjusting to their new lives. They were all transferred to Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, which served as the headquarters for NASA's Space Task Group, the subsection of the administration responsible for managing Project Mercury. Thus began the long process of training for the impending space launch. There was much to learn ranging from physics and orbital mechanics to the operation of the Mercury spacecraft. The Mercury 7 divided their time between several different locales, though they mostly remained tethered to Langley Air Force Base and the launch facility at Cape Canaveral. But training was not all that they did. They traveled to St. Louis to visit a McDonnell facility where the first Mercury crew capsule had been built. I imagine they must have been excited to see the craft that would carry them into space. But when they arrived at the site, that excitement diminished. The first problem that immediately stood out was just how small the capsule was. It was just over six feet across, and its walls seemed remarkably thin, given the extreme conditions it would have to weather. The interior wasn't any better. It was extremely cramped, claustrophobic even, with a single flight couch nested inside that would have to accommodate each man regardless of their size. The instrument panel rested just two feet from the pilot's face, and there wasn't even much of an opportunity to look out of a window to relieve the feeling of confinement. The capsule only had one small porthole and a periscope. The astronauts were not pleased and they let the engineers know about their concerns. First, they demanded that a proper window be added to the capsule. This would add weight, but the astronauts were adamant. They wanted a window, but they also wanted some way to control the spacecraft as it flew, especially for re-entry. In the current design, the capsule's flight was almost entirely automated, but the astronauts wanted some way to control the retro rockets that would deorbit and orient the capsule for re-entry. See, re-entering the atmosphere at the proper angle is critical. If the capsule comes in at too steep an angle, then the frictional forces of re-entry will torch it until it burns up entirely. If it comes in at too shallow an angle, then it runs the risk of glancing off the atmosphere and hurtling off course similar to the way a skipping stone glances off the surface of a lake. Either possibility would prove fatal, and the astronauts wanted at least partial control over whether or not they died horribly in the bleak cold of space. Now, the head of flight systems, Maxime Fajet, didn't much care for this protest, as he believed that the less control the astronauts had, the better off they would be. It was his opinion that the chances of human error were higher than the chances of an automatic control system malfunctioning or being wrong. But regardless, the astronauts' wishes were logged for consideration. The next activity on the docket was a trip to Convair at General Dynamics to get a look at the Atlas launch vehicle they were to ride into orbit. The Atlas had been America's first intercontinental ballistic missile. Developed by the Air Force, the Atlas was a powerful rocket. It was capable of 367,000 pounds of thrust and was able to propel the 4,000-pound mercury capsule up to the Earth's 18,000 mile-per-hour orbital velocity. It was designed to rain nuclear hellfire down on the Soviet Union, or most anyone else. But this particular rocket needed to be man-rated. That is, modified to meet the specifications required to carry a human. Transporting a nuclear warhead and transporting a person are two very different tasks. A warhead or an unmanned spacecraft can endure a great deal more acceleration and vibration than a human can. Before they could strap an astronaut to the top of the rocket, they had to make sure that it wouldn't over-accelerate and cause the pilot to black out or vibrate so much that the pilot would be harmed. Additionally, redundant systems were installed in the rocket for safety reasons. That way, if one system failed, other parallel systems would take over and reduce the chance of a launch failure, which would be very much more costly with a person riding along. On the 18th of May, the Mercury 7 traveled to Cape Canaveral for a flight test of the newly modified Atlas rocket. They were not the only ones in attendance. The press were there, of course, but there came also a smattering of VIPs, members of Congress, captains of industry, etc. While they were there, the astronauts were expected to put on a good show for the cameras, displaying confidence and stalwart spirit that would reflect well on NASA and the American space program as a whole. Alan Shepard and John Glenn were particularly good at this, but the rocket was the main event. The launch went well at first. It lifted free of the pad and streaked skyward on a spike of flame. But while it was still in sight from the ground, the rocket careened to one side, buckled, and then disintegrated in the air. Back in the observation bunker, Alan Shepard said to John Glenn, "Well." I'm glad they got that one out of the way. It wasn't a promising start, but such was the nature of rocketry. It had been that way since the beginning. Temperamental machines that they were, rockets required time and diligence to perfect. But in the eye of a public who didn't understand as much, the Atlas failure was a blow. Especially given that, to their knowledge, the Soviets had never suffered a launch failure. Of course, as we well know, the Soviets had suffered many failures, but the Soviet government kept those quiet and ensured that word never reached the wider world. Regardless, the process of honing the Atlas launch vehicle and the Mercury capsule marched forward, with some of the space task group engineers, led by one Scott Simkinson, sent to Langley Air Force Base to finish their work. They expected to be given a proper laboratory to work in, but such was not the case. The Air Force instead granted them a section of an old hangar, which they didn't even have to themselves. They were expected to share the workspace with some Navy research. The staff section had it even worse. They were given an empty storage corridor with barely the space to move around in once their desks were positioned inside. The environment made things even worse for the engineers as they struggled to work. The mosquitoes coming so thick that in an act of desperation, they took to spraying the ammonia from the capsule's cooling system to keep the insects at bay. Then there was the lack of available resources. In order to get any tools or supplies that were needed to complete their work, Simpkinson and his crew would need to file reams of acquisition paperwork that wouldn't see results for weeks or months. So, to solve this problem, Simpkinson took matters into his own hands, and he made an arrangement with his supervisor to be handed $50,000 to fulfill any material needs associated with the capsule work. Simpkinson was able to use this money to avoid the bureaucracy and get what he needed. When the capsule was finally ready for a test launch, Simpkinson realized that they didn't have a vehicle suitable to transport it to the launch pad, where the Atlas launch vehicle was waiting. With little time to rig up a solution, Simpkinson again made do with what he had. His crew wrangled up an old mattress and used it to line the bed of a pickup truck in which they carefully slotted the capsule and drove it to the launch pad. But when they hoisted it up to the top of the rocket, another problem emerged. The capsule was too wide to socket onto the missile by just half of an inch. So back to the hangar it was, where the engineers got to work on the problem. Luckily, it was not the capsule itself that was too wide, but rather just part of the heat shield so Simpkinson ran to a nearby hardware store where he purchased the tools necessary to grind off half an inch of heat shield all the way around. The improved Atlas and the Mercury capsule were finally ready for a test launch on the 9th of September, 1959. When the engines fired, they pushed the rocket skyward, but the stage separation occurred late, and the crew capsule expended most of its fuel burning for a re-entry angle. The controllers on the ground assumed at this point that the capsule was lost. It was oriented upside down from where it should have been. Surely it would re-enter at the wrong angle and burn up. But miraculously, the capsule flipped itself over and survived the return trip through the atmosphere, splashing down in the ocean just 500 miles off target. It wasn't ideal by any stretch. But the main objective of the test had been achieved. The heat shield had proven itself effective, even under less than optimal conditions. But even so, the test was still considered a failure because of the problems that were displayed. And this prompted NASA to change their plans. They decided that the Atlas was too unpredictable to launch a human. Its spotty track record was not enough to convince the NASA brass that an astronaut could be sent safely atop one. So the announcement came down that the Atlas was to be replaced with what had thus far proven to be the workhorse of the American space program, Fawn Brown's Redstone missile. Though this decision came with a second serious revision to the Mercury plan. The Redstone did not have nearly as much lifting power as the Atlas, being capable of only 70,000 pounds of thrust. That was not enough to place a Mercury capsule into orbit. But it was enough to send it into space, above the Kármán line, the international standard for where space begins, 100 kilometers or about 60 miles above the surface. As such, the Mercury missions were reconceived as ballistic flights, whereby the capsule would be shot straight up into space and then fall back down through the atmosphere without orbiting the Earth. This meant that one of the project's main objectives would have to be scrapped, and it would lessen the prestige of such a mission. But if the Redstone could put an American into space before the Soviets, it would mark a major victory in the space race nonetheless and propel the Americans into the lead. But before even this simplified mission could be undertaken, the Redstone needed some more work. It had to be man-rated like the Atlas had been. And to do this, NASA turned to the Redstone's head designer, Werner von Braun. Thus far, von Braun had been left out of Project Mercury, He and his engineers over at the Army Ballistic Missile Agency had been working on a rocket capable of firing a payload to the moon, which they called the Saturn. But von Brown was thrilled to finally be called in to contribute to the manned space program. He took his new task very seriously and got straight to work improving the Redstone. He and his team installed redundant systems for safety, worked on making the engines more reliable to prevent over-acceleration, and did everything they could to reduce vibration in flight. Meanwhile, other developments were unfolding that would directly impact the future of Fawn Brown's Huntsville gang. On the 21st of October, President Eisenhower announced that Fawn Brown and 4,000 of his Army personnel including his last remaining colleagues from Penamunda, would be transferred officially to NASA. What's more, the Redstone Arsenal would be officially converted to become Marshall Space Flight Center, named for General George C. Marshall, who served as the Army Chief of Staff during World War II. To make this deal even better, Fawn Brown was to be named Director of the entire facility. But that still wasn't the end of Fawn Braun's good fortune. Later that month, the Saturn rocket project received official approval. When NASA had formed in October of the previous year, Fawn Braun had been largely marginalized in the space game. He had been left out of Project Mercury. But now, just over a year later, his fortunes had turned in a blinding instant he was back in on America's highest-profile space project. All the while, the Mercury 7 continued their training. Part of this included regular stints in the centrifuge, which was essentially a pod on the end of a long metal arm that spun, placing strain on the astronaut inside the pod via centrifugal force. This machine could simulate the rigors of high G maneuvers that could occur during a spaceflight and it allowed the astronauts to accustom themselves to such rigors, as well as the medical personnel to monitor how their bodies responded to such strain. It was during just such a test that Lieutenant Colonel William Douglas, Project Mercury's flight surgeon, detected an anomalous reading on Deke Slayton's electrocardiogram. He seemed to be detecting an irregular heartbeat. At first, Douglas played it down assuring Slayton that it could have simply been a quirk in the sensing equipment, but repeated readings all returned a similar result. There was no denying it. Somehow, Deke Slayton, a man who had been in peak health, had developed an irregular heartbeat. Needless to say, this was a grave concern for Slayton. Of course, there were the health concerns that arose around such a revelation, but more importantly for Deke, it meant that he might not be allowed to fly into space. An astronaut with a health condition was just a liability. The medical staff kept a close eye on Deke's condition as he took to aggressive exercise. He ran. He quit smoking. He quit drinking coffee. But still, the strange issue with his heart remained. It would appear for two or three days at a time, and then disappear for an average of ten days before resurfacing. The doctors were baffled. They couldn't identify the problem. Some of the nation's top cardiologists were called in, and they were at a loss as well. But they did write up a report that was sent to NASA, which declared that despite the irregularity, it would not affect Deke's ability to serve as an astronaut, and as such, he should be allowed to stay on with the program. NASA accepted the doctor's findings, and Slayton got to stay. For the time being, Deke Slayton was still an astronaut. While all of this was unfolding in the U.S., Sergei Kurlyev's June got off to a rough start with another failed lunar probe. But he had plenty else to concern himself with that summer. As I mentioned before, the announcement of the American astronauts had kindled a fresh desire among the Soviets to start on a manned program of their own. Kurliev held meetings with his design bureau, designated OKB-1, as well as the Academy of Sciences, the Institute of Aviation Medicine, and the military to begin work on a nationwide search for a class of cosmonauts to match the American astronauts. As a result of these meetings, Kurliev decided on a set of criteria. He thought that the ideal cosmonaut would be around 30 years of age, at or below 150 pounds, about 68 kilograms, and shorter than 67 inches, approximately 170 centimeters. With these requirements in mind, the Soviets began their search in the summer of 1959. Though unlike in the U.S., this operation was conducted in the utmost secrecy, under the clandestine title, Theme No. 6 the recruiters focused their search on air bases, inquiring after pilots who met the requirements for special flights. There was no mention of space or of rockets. They managed to find 200 candidates who fit the bill, and they were all shipped to the Scientific Research Aviation Hospital for a battery of tests similar to those that the American astronauts were subjected to. This process cut the pool of candidates down tenfold to just 20, who formed the so-called Star Squad. The Russians finally had their own cosmonaut corps. The first class of cosmonauts had been found, but it would be a long road before any of them were ready to fly into space. But while they were being prepared, Kurlyev's team was preparing to launch their next lunar probe. Luna 2 was a very similar machine to Luna 1, which had missed the moon in January and became the first human object to enter a solar orbit. Luna 2 was launched on the 12th of September, and it successfully broke free of the Earth's gravity. But unlike Luna 1, Luna 2 slammed straight into the moon, impacting just east of the Mare Serenitatis region. It was the very first spacecraft to ever impact another celestial body. The Soviets had beaten the Americans to the moon with an unmanned vehicle. The impact came as Khrushchev was in the United States, meeting with President Eisenhower. And it gave Khrushchev precisely the leverage he needed to put Eisenhower on the defensive. To make matters worse, a pair of Western observatories had tracked Luna 2's flight and were able to confirm that it had successfully struck the moon, leaving no doubt that the Soviets had actually accomplished what they claimed. Eisenhower was predictably displeased, and in a move that I'm sure was completely unrelated, he denied Khrushchev a trip to Disneyland, though he cited security concerns as the reason why. Von Braun had a different reaction to the news. He recognized that the successful impact indicated that Soviet propulsion technology was far in advance of anything the Americans had in their arsenal. He calculated that in order to deliver a package the size of Luna 2 all the way to the moon, the first stage of the rocket must have been capable of putting out at least 500,000 pounds of thrust, greater than even that of the Atlas. It was a wake-up call for America's engineers. They would need to produce a rocket at least as powerful as that to match the Soviets. The Saturn fit the bill, but it was far from launch ready. Just three weeks later, the Soviets struck again with the launch of Luna 3. This machine was an entirely different beast from Lunas 1 and 2. Rather than ramming headlong into the moon, Luna 3 swung around the back side, making use of an impressive array of systems to carry out its mission. When it circled around to the far side of the moon, the side that had never been seen before because it's always facing away from the Earth, the sun was positioned behind the spacecraft so that it beautifully illuminated that entire hemisphere for the spacecraft's cameras. Photoelectric cells on the spacecraft helped the machine to orient its cameras properly to have the best angle to see the lunar surface below. In just 40 minutes, it photographed 70% of the dark side's surface for the very first time. But that wasn't all. Rather than wait until the probe returned to the Earth to retrieve the images from the camera, they were developed automatically on board the spacecraft, before being scanned by a television unit so that they could be beamed back to earth as radio waves and received on the ground. A receiving station in I-Petri, Crimea was intended to pick up the images as they were broadcast, but the radio comm system was working erratically that day. When word reached Kurlyev, he decided to tend to the problem personally, even though he was miles away. Undaunted, He rounded up a few of his colleagues, and they flew to Crimea. If they hurried, they could be at the radio station by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, just about the time that Luna 3 should have strayed into radio range. A helicopter was supposed to take them the rest of the way to the receiving station, but inclement weather fouled their plans. This wasn't enough to stop Kurlyev, however, not when the first glimpse of the dark side of the moon was at stake. He led his team to Yalta, where they managed to find a driver willing to take them the rest of the way through the storm, which had since escalated to a blizzard. Kurlyev said to the driver, Well, dear boy, show us what you and the Zim can do, referring to the car. The driver did exactly as he was bade. He flew over the winding roads in extremely poor visibility, and by some miraculous strike of providence, Kurliev and his team were deposited safely at the station. Kurliev rushed inside and immediately set to work on the problem. The cause turned out to be poor quality control among the procedures performed at the station. The problem was resolved. But that wasn't the end of Luna 3's troubles. The next crisis arose when Kurliev received word that the spacecraft was beginning to overheat as its thermal regulation system was not functioning as intended. Thankfully, one of Kurliev's teammates, a man named Ostashev, devised a two-pronged solution for the issue. First, he carefully rotated the craft to keep problem areas out of the sun, all the while ensuring that the solar cells which powered the satellite were allowed to produce enough energy to keep the machine conscious. Secondly he selectively powered down certain systems on board when they were not needed. These two actions combined kept the temperature within operational margins. In the end, Luna 3 was a resounding success. The images of the moon's dark side came through, and for the first time, human eyes were able to see what lay on the moon's far face. Craters, plains, and gullies, never before seen, were laid plain by Luna 3. It was the most detail in which a celestial body had ever been photographed, and it allowed for early mapping efforts to get underway. Kurliev himself named a massive crater on the far side after his inspiration, and another of our old friends, Konstantin Solkovsky. It still bears his name to this day. The Soviet state took quick notice of this achievement and awarded Kurliev and his wife Nina with a house for his service. Sergei had married Nina in 1949, following his divorce from Zenia the previous year. The house was built in Podlipsky, sporting six rooms, a patio, and a basement, much nicer than the home Kurliev had at Baikonur. He filled his new house with books and art, including a portrait of his wife in his study. According to his daughter Natasha, Kurliev loved his new home. Given the terrors he had suffered at the hands of the Communist Party, both in the gulags and out, it was the very least that the Soviet leadership could do. The Luna 3 launch serves as a fitting case study in Kurliev's leadership style. He had a notorious temper and was prone to fits of angry cursing. The operators of the Crimean radio station certainly found out about that firsthand. He also pushed his people very hard, especially leading up to a launch. Arkady Ostashev, who figured out how to cool Luna 3, said of his experience at OKB-1, We worked around the clock and many specialists did not leave their test stations for several days in a row, end quote. But Kurliev was also quick with praise and reward for those he felt performed well. Following the success of Luna 3, he gifted another of his colleagues, Oleg Ivanovsky, with a little blue book, which contained the first pictures that Luna 3 captured of the moon's far side. The book was inscribed, quote, to Oleg, with good memories of our work together. If you worked for Sergei Kurlyev, you'd be pushed to the limit, and you'd likely have to endure some bouts of rage. But if you did your job and you did it right, you would be recognized and rewarded for it. Come January of 1960, Khrushchev had been imbued with a renewed lust for space exploration. Luna 3 had been a major boon to Soviet prestige, and it had thoroughly stumped the Americans. The lead the Soviets had earned early on in the space race, which had been shrinking as the Americans had enjoyed more successful launches, had been comfortably restored. But it wasn't enough for the Soviet premier. He wanted to accelerate Soviet efforts in space even going so far as to request that Kirliev launch a probe to plant the Soviet flag on Mars by October of 1960. Now, that didn't happen, as I'm sure you could probably guess. But what did happen was quite significant to the Soviet manned space program. A cosmonaut training center was established in Moscow where the so-called star squad could train and prepare to mount a rocket bound for the heavens. To command this facility, one General Nikolai Kamenin was selected, who was known for his hard demeanor and dedication to communism. Under his leadership, the training center was the site of some rather extreme human experiments. The doctors who worked there had no qualms with conducting experiments on the trainees. They made extensive use of a sensory deprivation chamber, in which would-be cosmonauts were locked for prolonged periods without any stimuli. Sleep was strictly forbidden, as a bright light would be used to wake any man who drifted off while inside. There were additional experiments performed to assess the effects of oxygen deprivation wherein a room would be slowly evacuated of oxygen while a trainee wrote his name over and over. As the oxygen was siphoned away, the writing would become more erratic until it was reduced to only a scribble on the page. Kurliev objected to these particular experiments as he argued that there was no time that a cosmonaut would ever be subjected to low oxygen. They would either have it or they wouldn't. However, that didn't stop the doctors from continuing the tests. The most dedicated of the trainees stuck it out, desirous to be selected for one of the coveted special flights. If this was the requirement, they would suffer whatever was necessary. Among this group, there was one young pilot who would stand particularly tall in the history books. And his name was Yuri Alekseyevich Gagarin. That's where we're going to leave off for now. The Mercury program is making slow but steady progress, despite a number of frustrating setbacks. Von Braun has been officially absorbed by NASA and given his own spaceflight center to boot. In Russia, Kurlyev has just propelled the Soviet Union forward by two massive leaps in the space race and is laying the groundwork for a manned program of his own. Next week, We'll be continuing the story of the Mercury 7 in the US and the Star Squad in the USSR, as they both race to be the first human beings to ever leave the Earth behind. But in the Soviet Union, disaster will strike the rocket community, disrupting their plans. Until we return, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars.